If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I'm going to ask you to go to two different places with me this morning. Interestingly enough and fittingly enough, obviously there are no accidents with God, Matthew chapter 2 and Luke chapter 2. Matthew 2 and Luke chapter 2. Since I have a habit of knocking stuff over, I'm going to make a little bit more room. We have been looking through a series. We've been considering this Christmas what I have called the motley men of Christmas. And what I mean again by motley is not Motley Crue, the 80s big hair band. All right. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about motley in the sense of diverse, very different types of men. And two weeks ago, we looked at the hope of Christmas, that there's hope in Christmas because God does the impossible. God does the impossible and yet includes mankind in it. And we look specifically at the life of Joseph. And what we learned about Joseph is that Joseph's obedience involved him in the impossible and flooded him with hope. And that can happen for you and I this Christmas. Last week, we took a complete turn and we looked at the terror of Christmas. And we learned through the tyrannical reign of Herod and his unbelievable, unimaginable brutality and violence that when we think only of ourselves, if we are me-focused, if we only think what's in it for me or how do I find the pleasure and the meaning of life, we end up, ironically, only destroying ourselves and those around us. And we saw that in in Matthew chapter 2, really, it's not about three kings, but about two kings. Herod, the self-appointed king of Israel or Judea, or Jesus Christ, the God-sent, God-ordained king of the Jews, Messiah for all mankind. And we asked the question last week, who is your king? Who's your king? This week, we want to look at the power of Christmas. That there's power in Christmas. And here's why Christmas is powerful. Because as we look into Matthew chapter 2 and Luke chapter 2, God reaches out to anyone and everyone. Anyone and everyone. And you're going to see that in the wise men of Matthew chapter 2 and the shepherds of Luke chapter 2. But here is the thing I want you to mull over in your minds. It's the thing I pray. I can't lie to you. I go home every afternoon after I eat and I lay down on my bed and before I go to sleep, I pray and I say, Lord, would you haunt the people with your word this afternoon? So just so you know, that's what I pray for you every afternoon. And I mean haunt in the best kind of way. All right. But here's what I want you to deal with. Will you, will I, will we in Christmas of 2015 look for and find and worship Jesus. Will we? Will we? Next week, if God gives it to us, we're going to bring this all together as we look at the person of Christmas and we look at Jesus, God in the flesh. Tell me if you've heard these words. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. And through many dangers and toils and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far. And grace, grace will lead me home. Oh, the Lord, the Lord has promised good to me. His word, my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be. As long as life endures. Yea, when this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. And the earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine. But God, 
who called me here below will be forever mine. And so when we've been there 10,000 years and bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. What's your emotional response to that poem that was made a song? Can you tell me who wrote it? Huh? John Newton. John Newton wrote it. Now, does anybody know about him? Some people are shaking their heads. John Newton, the great writer of Amazing Grace, that song that has been sung in churches for decades, even over a century, that song that you hear in movies and television and pop culture. It seems it doesn't matter your religious branding or where you come from. You have heard this song, albeit I think nobody actually reads the lyrics to it. But we love this song and we love John Newton. But if you knew him personally today, if you really know his story, John Newton was gloriously saved in the belly of a ship in the midst of a storm. But his story starts with most of his life, he was a wretched, very much an alcoholic man who was a slave trader and was responsible, even they say, for the death of multiple slaves. And God gloriously saved him. And see, we love him and we, we love this song and we're influenced by him. But what would your attitude be or your acceptance of or your willingness to be influenced this type of man if you knew him personally in real time? If you knew him in 2015? I had this experience when I was in Russia. I don't know if I've shared that before. I got to go to a rehabilitation center in the city of Dzhinsk, according to National Geographic, a number of years ago, was the fifth dirtiest city in the world. It is an industrial city surrounded by prisons. And the church I got to go to, me and my translator and the pastor host that was taking me around, we were the only people present that had not been in prison. And they took me to a rehab center where I met a group of men that had been gloriously saved in prison and were now in this rehab center and they were struggling to be free of the addiction primarily of alcohol but often of violence and uh, cycles of violence in their lives and they were studying for baptism and stuff like this. And I met this man and I'm sitting down with him and I'm talking with him and he tears up and we're sharing scripture and I ask him how I can pray for him and he says, would you pray that God will forgive me for murdering my wife? And I froze. I had his hand in my hand. And the truth is, everything in me screamed, pull your hand back. And tears streamed down his face as he sought to be right with God. And then I was face to face with how big and how powerful is the gospel. What does that look like? How do you treat people like that? I don't know if you know it. I don't know, Steve, if we have it. Do we have that picture that I sent? Okay. I wish I had it for you, but if you go and you Google John Newton, he wrote his own epitaph for his headstone. And on it, he writes that he was gloriously saved, and he says, I was an evil man, and I didn't deserve it. And God still saved me. But now I want to get personal. What's your story? What's your story? Why are you here? How did you get here? What I don't mean is, oh, well, I got in the car and I drove from my address, Steve. I, you know, I put it into my GPS and I followed the instructions. That's not, I mean, how did you come to be here today, to be someone singing Oh Holy Night and in a church on a Sunday morning when you could be sleeping? How did you get here? What's your testimony? How did God save you and show himself to you? And what's your life been like since Jesus has been in it? You see, what would people that know you say about you and your testimony? I got the joy of going Thursday night up to First Baptist Academy. We have a number of our families with their kids in the school there. And Deb and I wanted to go up and, and, and uh, see, see things up there and be an encouragement to the kids. And, and while I was there, you know, again, coming back here, one of the big things about me coming back here, and believe it or not, putting my name 
out on that sign is that people are going to see my name on that sign. And you need to realize that 90 kilometers away from here in a town of Harbor Grace, there are people there that know a version of me that none of you know, and quite frankly, is one that I can often be ashamed of. There's people up at First Baptist Academy that know me since I was five years old. It was watching the kids sing, and Debbie and I had deja vu moments because we stood on those very same steps and sang. But my life has been gloriously rescued, but there is often times that people that would see me, if someone who knew the 16-year-old version of Steve and Harbor Grace came here and walked in here and saw me up here, they'd want to know, why are you up there, dude? You're not the guy we know. And I would have to say, you're absolutely correct. Can you witness to those friends who know you? Can you share with them some profound truth? Let me put it another way. What do you know to be true about God? What do you know to be true about God? No ifs, ands, or buts. You simply know it to be true. It's where your emotions and your experience and truth all collide. And you might not understand it. You might not even be able to explain it 100%, but you simply know it's true and you hang on to this no matter what. And if you think about John Newton or you think about Steve Bray or you think about yourself, I want you to know, believe it or not, when you turn to your Bible, you're in good company. You're in good company. I don't know if you realize this or not, but your Bible is filled with flawed people. Really messed up. I don't know if I'm still behind the times. I think I want to think I'm cool. Still jacked up people. I don't know if that's a term anybody uses anymore, but I think I sound cool saying it, so I'm just going to say it. All right? It's that. Think about it. Adam, the first man was a blame shifter, couldn't resist peer pressure, and actually was the first man to abandon and abuse his wife. Eve, the first woman, couldn't control her appetites or impulses. In fact, as one guy said, she was the first woman to literally have an eating disorder. Noah, the last righteous man on earth at the time, after the flood, became a drunk who slept in the nude and caused his family to fall. Abraham, the forefather of our faith, let other men walk off with his wife, not once, but twice, and often let his wife lead. Sarah, who, if she lived today, would be People's Magazine's most sexiest woman alive. She was considered the most beautiful by popular opinion of her day, and yet she let her husband sleep with another woman that she suggested and then hated the other woman for it. Moses was called the humblest man on the face of the earth, according to Numbers 12, 13, yet he had a problem with his temper. Then there's David, the man after God's own heart who committed adultery and murdered. There's Hosea, the minor prophet who married a prostitute. There's Peter, who was the torturer and persecutor and oversaw the murder of, how, of Stephen and others. You've got Peter, who lied and, and, and ran his mouth and cursed God, even at the zenith when God needed him the most. And then if you look at Matthew chapter 1 and the genealogy of Jesus, and you actually take notice of some of the names, you get a, a woman by the name of Tamar who's in Genesis, who tricked her father-in-law, dressed up as a, a prostitute, tricked her father-in-law to sleep with her and had a child with him. Ruth is a Moabitess idol worshiper that ends up in, in Israel married to Boaz. Bathsheba, who committed adultery with David. Then there's Mary, the teenage girl who's pregnant and not married. And so if you look at this, you have Jews and Gentiles, men and women, rich and poor, those that are good living, those that are bad living, some that are moral, some that are immoral, but they all had something in common. We see over and over again that God visits the flawed with his grace and his mercy and his love and the power of the gospel overcomes their and our flaws. This is the power of Christmas I'm talking about. This is the power of Christmas and so for some of you here, because I look into your faces and I know all of you by name, but some of you here are maybe to learn for the very first time about the power of Christmas in your life. 
Maybe you've heard about Christmas. You've heard about the gospel. You've heard all the things. You can win all the awards. You can do all the pageants, but you've never really experienced the power of Christmas. And for others, many of you in this room, I think what you need is a reminder about the power of Christmas. But here's the question, and it goes into the whole sermon in a sentence, right? Here's, here's what it boils down to, church. Will you listen? Will you listen? Will you hear? Will you allow this power of Christmas to speak into your life? And so I want to ask you to go on, on a journey with me, all right, into Matthew 2 and into Luke 2. And I want to look at two of the most familiar people, groups of people in the story of Christmas or the narrative of Christmas, the wise men and the shepherds. But I got to put this in perspective, all right? Because again, remember I said John Newton, the reason why I started with Amazing Grace is because it is a song, it is lyrics that evoke an emotional response, usually very warm ones. We, we like that song. We like the power of it. We like to think of John Newton. We like to think of what a great guy he was, and he influenced William Wilberforce, and they overcome slavery in the United Kingdom and all these, and yet we don't realize that this guy was a raving, violent alcoholic who took advantage of women and slaves, and God had to save him. And so often we can take real people and we only hear the end of the story and then we think that's the essence of who they are. And we don't realize all the pieces that are put together to make a person, a man or a woman, who they are. So the wise men and the shepherds. Now, if you were thinking about wise men today, you've got to think about what you're dealing with. Because wise men, as the Bible says, are likely the people who write your horoscopes in the newspaper. They were likely mediums or psychics, the ones that studied the star- astrologers. And those that study the stars, they were called magi, which in the Greek means is where we get our English word for magician and magic. All right? The wise men, I believe these guys were from Babylon. If you read Daniel, you hear about the wise men. They were called, and these guys were called to the kings, these pagan kings in Babylon and Persia and all these things, and they were told to tell them the future. And you can read about these, these wise men and how goofy they were with Belshazzar and Darius and others, as they really didn't have a clue what they were talking about. But they took their best calculated guess. Now, they were smart guys, intelligent guys. But this is what you're dealing with. So imagine if a group of psychics, a group of mediums, walked into here and said, Hey, Calvary, I have a message from God. What would your reaction be? Now, the shepherds are the other extreme. In Judaism, they were the lowest dregs of Jewish society. By law, they were not allowed to be witnesses in court. They weren't trustworthy. To put it in our modern society, imagine if someone, like when the recycling depots or on a construction site, but these weren't tradesmen. On a construction site, you always need someone who's basically just the guy that probably didn't do well in school, maybe that business owner in the recycling world or construction world, and he decided, you know what, I'll give a break to those guys with felonies or those ex-cons, those guys that got a record, and they're not going to get kind of jobs. They'll do mundane entry level. They'll clean up the work site. They'll do what I tell them to do, those types of things. They can sort recyclables, all that kind of, they they eke out a living. They hope they can get ahead. This was who a shepherd is. Again, if you want to make sense of this, how many of you have ever watched that movie or read the book Les Miserables? Now, again, I don't know how to say French. Put your hands up. Um, Jennifer's going to, because all I know is it's Les Miserables. All right, that's all, that's how I know the book and the movie. I'll ask Debbie, can we watch Less Miserables, all right? Uh, I know there's a fancy French way it rolls off the tongue that you say it. I don't know how to do it, all right? But that is a powerful story, a powerful, powerful story. Now, there's all kinds of characters interwoven, but ultimately the two that really fascinate me is the sheriff and then the guy who is the criminal and he kind of redeems his life. And the sheriff, for de- he just can't believe someone who was a criminal can actually be noble, And eventually the sheriff gives him, and he literally takes his own life in this struggle to extend any kind of forgiveness or hope. He had no idea of the power of Christmas. None. And that's the same way with the wise men and the shepherds. So let's look at it in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, we read this last week, but I'm going to skip around it a little bit. So the wise men come, all right, in Matthew chapter 2, and they come to Herod in verse 2 saying, Where is he who has been born king 
of the Jews. Now notice what they say. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. But they don't know where he is. They're smart. They know. So Herod brings the, the religious scribes and the Pharisees and they tell him right from God's word. And they quote Micah and they say, And you, O Bethlehem, verse 6, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler. Now notice this word, who will shepherd, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, my people Israel. Now notice, Herod summons them and he tells them to go. Now watch what happens. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now watch their reaction. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Now, take notice of this in scriptures. Then opening their treasures, they opened their treasures. They, they, uh, they, they offered him gifts. They weren't in it for what, was what Jesus could do for them. They were so amazed by him. They wanted to give everything to him. They offered their treasures and they offered their gifts to him of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And then, and being warned in a dream not to go to return to Herod. Now, I don't know. They must have been eating the same pizza Joseph's eating because now they're having dreams. All right. And they departed to their own country by another way. So there's the wise men. Now go over to Luke 2. Go over to Luke chapter 2 and listen to Luke in verse 8. Luke chapter 2 and verse 8. Luke records for us these words. And in the same region there were shepherds. Now when he says regions, think of Jerusalem and six miles south-southwest is Bethlehem. And you've got rolling hills and pastures. And so they're in that region. They could see both Jerusalem and Bethlehem. So they're in the region. There were shepherds out in the field. And they're keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And from Genesis to Revelation, when God displays himself, that is the universal emotion, fear, okay? But here is almost the universal response. Verse 10, and the angel said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be for all the people. Well, what is it? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. And I don't know if you know this or not, but swaddling cloths sounds all nice. That was the burial cloths of the dead. When we say Jesus was born to die, all right, swaddling cloths are the cloths they use to wrap dead people when they prep them to put them in a grave. Jesus is wrapped in the very things that he has come to do to die for us. That would have stood out to the shepherds. You'll find this baby wrapped basically in death cloths. Lying in a manger, that's the feeding trough. Again, where animals come to feed, how often does Jesus say, I am the bread of life and I am the water of life and if you would drink from me or eat from me and it would confuse people. But here it is, even in his birth. He's wrapped in death. He's put into a manger where animals would come to feed. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, can you hear the handles, Messiah? Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace. Now notice this. Among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, I love this conversation. The shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it, everyone that heard these shepherds wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now, what did you see there? What did you see? 
just allow your minds to ponder what you've just heard and read because before I even go any further, I want to make sure everybody knows this is true, right? Just, Just FYI, this happened. This is an account of real, actual events. This is not equal to "twas the night before Christmas." This is what Christmas really is. This is the real events. This really happened. And so, the first thing that should jump out to you, number one, is God always reveals Himself first. I want you to realize God always reveals Himself first. In both Matthew 2 and Luke 2. God is the one and the only one who speaks. He's the only one who appears or reveals or displays. Now you have to realize with your Bible. If you take your Bible and you end and you look at the last page of Malachi at the end of the Old Testament. And then you flip over a page and you're to Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. Well you need to tell yourself 400 years has gone by. 400 years where God has been silent. Nothing. Nothing from God. Then all of a sudden, a star appears. And just like the video that very few of you saw at the beginning, all right? It says the people have seen a great light. This really happened. This really happened. Really, all of the Bible has been preparing us for this moment when God would speak and would come, that God would physically be with his people. But it's a very different from any other time. If you go back in Genesis in the Garden of Eden, God was with his people in the cool of the day, but he was there with power and authority. And when you didn't obey him, you ran from him and you hid from him because his holiness made you ashamed. If you think of Abraham when he spoke to Abraham or Moses at the burning bush, or what about when God comes to Mount Sinai? Again, folks, Star Wars and George Lucas has nothing on the displays of God. All right, in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 21, the writer of Hebrews explains it this way when he quotes Exodus 19 and 20. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. When when God showed up at Mount Sinai, the people said, we don't want to hear from God anymore. Notice he goes further. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. This is the first time that God comes in the form of his creation as a baby and is approachable. The wise men, this star appears, these Babylonian wise men, and maybe they've had exposures to the writings of Daniel or to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's still likely a Jewish community in that area. Maybe they've heard about the king of the Jews. Maybe they've read, and then all of a sudden this star appears and God seems to be working. And while these smart Psychics or or mediums, they were intellectual, they studied literature, they studied maps, they studied the stars, and they were knowledgeable. They knew how to do it. But yet at the end of the day, for all of their learning, for all of their ability, what did they do? They still came to Jerusalem and said, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And what really shows them? The word of God. The word of God. The scribes and the Pharisees read the word of God to them, and then they know that Jesus is in Bethlehem. Go with me, if you would, back to Psalm 19. I want you to see this because we live in an age of feelings and emotions where you might not have mediums and psychics and things like that in the church, but we put a premium on the idea of visions and dreams and stuff like that. And if you don't understand that anything apart from the Word of God is secondary, you will be led astray. The word of God is preeminent. Now notice what David says in Psalm 19. He says, The heavens declare the glory of the Lord, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. He's basically saying, The whole of creation exclaims that I am God. There is no speech, verse 3, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. 
Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. In verse 6, its rising is from the ends of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat as he talks about the sun. So he talks all about the display of God but then notice the whole chapter turns in verse 7 and all he does is describe the word of God. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. See, you need to understand general revelation, how God displays himself in creation, how God displays himself even in community, how God may display himself in visions and dreams. If it doesn't find its subjection to the word of God, all that will do is good enough to condemn you. It's not good enough to save you. Only the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And look at what David says. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Folks, when was the last time you read the word of God? Have you ever, ever just longed for God's word? As the deer pants for the water is more than just a cheesy little song from the 80s. It should be the desire of our heart. Do you pant for the word of God? Do you pant for Jesus? Like you're thirsty and you're aching for your thirst to be quenched and only God can quench it? This is what he means. God always reveals himself first. Now, look, I'm not denying it's refreshing to see the curiosity of the wise men. And I, I admit that too many times in 2015 in the church of the Western world, that mental laziness as many so-called believers in the Lord have no curiosity about his word at all. We are quite content to have Mick Church or Mick Bible and have it all served up to us on a platter instead of actually getting into God's word ourselves. The church today claims to love God, Christ, and the church, and even the Bible, but remains seemingly contentedly ignorant of his eternal truths. And although these astrologers, they sought their answers in the wrong source, yet the source led them to the scriptures. And whatever that star was, it pointed them to the word of God. And I want you to notice in Matthew 2, they trusted Hebrew scripture enough to travel to Bethlehem in search of the newborn king of the Jews. Now in Luke 2, the shepherds, on the other hand, were simply minding their own business. They're simply doing whatever it takes to make a living, either to provide for themselves or maybe for their family. They're trying to stay alive. Maybe some of them are trying to make enough to eke out a living or to break free from that lifestyle. They want to clean up their life they want to make some sort of life for themselves and make something better. Maybe some of them are just trying to stay ahead of the bills. Um, <clears throat> does any of that sound familiar? Does that not describe many of us? But look a little deeper and think a little deeper about the shepherds. Did you ever ask yourself, why them? Why the shepherds in the field keeping watch of their flock by night? Why these wise men? Why, why these psychic dudes? The shepherds were the marginalized of the Jews. The wise men were maybe even respected. Some maybe even feared them, but they were still outsiders. And to the Jews, they were considered dogs. Paul says of Gentiles in Galatians 6.2, Gentile sinners, unable to truly know God. But it could be that the shepherds in Luke 2 remind us of David. Remember, David was a shepherd. Remember in, in Micah that Jesus will come and shepherd his people Israel? Maybe that's why. Maybe it's because the shepherds, by, by handling all these sheep, they were perpetually unclean. They would never be ceremonially clean enough to go to the temple. And so Jesus coming takes the unclean and makes them clean. Maybe that's why. You see, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 and 29. I love this. I think everybody needs to read this at least once a week. For your, consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
and God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. When was the last time you just got up and said, you know what, I am not wise, I am not strong, in fact, I am foolish, and I am dumb, and praise God, he saved me. See, i got to tell you, if you're coming to Jesus because you think it's a great self-help plan, you're going to be disappointed. Because it's not a self-help plan. It's a I-need-help plan, and you trust in Jesus. That's what Christianity is. Ultimately, the shepherds tell us that Jesus came to average people like the wise men, both groups. But notice they did something because, number two, the wise men and the shepherds responded. Okay, God always reveals himself first, but the wise men and the shepherds responded. Now, let me clue this up for a second here. I want you guys to think about Christmas. For whoever your friends, your family, your neighbors, your co-workers, your schoolmates, whatever it might be, I want to make sure I put here in a sentence, what, if you're here and you say, I'm a Cri then Christian, then let's make sure we're honest about what we're saying we believe. Here's what we're saying. We're saying 2,000 years ago, the eternal God of creation and the universe entered the womb of a virgin where his human body grew for nine months. His mother gave birth to the Son of God who took on the flesh and blood of man. Can I get a witness? <laughs> now, that demands a response. If that's true... If that's true, that demands a response. You can't be like, uh-huh. Now, what was the hockey game on tonight? You can't be, oh, I believe that now. Well, listen, what's the, what's the Christmas gift list again? No, if that's true, that demands a response. Now, listen, here's what happens in 2015. You say that, some people laugh at you. You say that, most people ignore you and can't wait for you to get away. Others will deny it. Still, others will even fight to suppress it. Now, but there's some out there that are curious. Even in the narrative itself at Jesus' birth, look, angels sang, shepherds worshipped, Mary pondered what everything meant. And later in Luke chapter 2, Simeon and Anna would praise God and run all around the temple praising God. At the same time, the group of wise men embarked on a journey to find this newborn child. I love this. Paul Tripp expressed it like this. The angels sang a glory song because glory had come to earth to unleash his glory on all who would put their trust in him. They responded. Now notice the theme of their response in Matthew 2 and Luke 2. The wise men were curious. They wondered. The shepherds were fearful and they wondered. But when the announcement came, um, once God spoke, there was great rejoicing. There was unmitigated joy. And what did they respond to? Really what they both responded to, there is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And that's what we're going to look at next Sunday. But how did they respond? Number three, the wise men and shepherds worshipped. They worshipped. Now, the amazing thing about the power of Christmas, <laughs> hear me on this. Once you've encountered the gospel... Once you've really met Jesus, you've seen him and you've known him, you've seen yourself. When you really see God's plan and you see that God's working and you see his purpose for your life. Listen to me, folks, you can't help but worship. If you are having problems worshiping, I will tell you, you have a problem with your relationship with God. That's the end of the story. Once you realize, you know what, I need help. I'm I'm messed up. And you are not and you cannot be good enough. Then you see that God has done it all. And he extends to you his grace and his mercy and his love. I love this. Look at what Matthew says. And going into the house, Matthew 2, they saw the child with Mary his mother and they fell down and worshipped him. Now, I, I wish I could do this. I was going to bring Micah out, but I was afraid he might get stage fright. Because Micah is how old? Three and a half. So who, who's got a two-year-old? Anybody got a two-year-old here? How old is Caleb? Two, all right? So imagine Caleb up here, and I get Jeff uh, Gallagher, and I get Jeff Piercy and Jason Piercy, and I'm right, boys, here's your cane. And they come up in front of you guys, everybody watching, and they get down on hands and knees, and they start bowing down to Caleb. 
and they start offering him their gifts. And, and they, they're just in shock and awe that they're in the presence of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Right? Our snickering means we have no concept of what it means. We've lost the wonder of it. This is They worshipped. One pastor writes this, when read in the context of all that has come before, their months of travel, their persistence in finding the trial, he agrees with J.C. Ryle. Here's what J.C. Ryle, an old pastor, said this, we read of no greater faith than this in the whole volume of the Bible than the wise men. And what makes it so great is not merely what they did, it's, it's as T.S. Eliot said, they died to themselves when they fell down and worshipped him. What makes it so great is who did it? It was Gentiles. It was, it was these magicians. It was these, these people that had no part in the plan. And yet God says, no, no, no. The power of Christmas is he reaches out to anyone and everyone. Who worships the king of the Jews? Herod doesn't. We learned that last week. The, the chief priests and the scribes don't. All of the Jews and Israels don't know. It's these Gentiles who Psalm 2.12 says, kiss the Son of God. And then finally, the wise men and the shepherds obeyed and proclaimed. They obeyed and proclaimed. Remember what they did? The, the, the wise men have that dream where God speaks to them and now they obey. And you, do you think that they kept quiet all the way back to Babylon? We already know what the shepherds did. You see, the shepherds obey and proclaim. And Paul sums up these two groups. You want me to bring this into your lives? All right. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Here's what Paul says to Titus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Okay, so what does that mean? Training us, notice, training us to do what? Renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, in the here and now. And why would you do that? Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great, notice this, Savior Jesus Christ, who was born to you this day, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now notice how it finishes. Who gave himself up for us. Why? To redeem us from all lawlessness. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Are you zealous for Christmas? For turkey and mistletoe and gifts? Or are you zealous for the good works of Jesus Christ? The wise men first obeyed out of curiosity. But after seeing Jesus, they obey from worship. They worship and they rejoice and they humble themselves and they proclaim. The shepherds praise God, they glorify God, and they tell others. Now, I want you to think about how the Bible explains witnessing. How many of you, okay, straight up, I, I'm in the mood to do this because I'll be done on time, so don't ha hang on. How many of you are a little bit afraid to witness? Now, look at the courage of that. Over half this church put their hand up. Because you're looking for a way in, right? You're afraid of messing it up, you're, right? Or you're afraid of what's going to go wrong. And often we think more about what will go wrong than ever assuming anything will ever go right. Now watch the shepherds. Watch this. What do they do? Remember that the, they, 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 how, how the Bible explains it. They simply tell people what they've seen and heard. That's their plan. Let's just go and tell people what we saw and heard. They, they, that's, their whole, that's their whole witnessing program. Let's just tell people what we've seen and heard. They, they weren't embarrassed. They were full of joy. They weren't afraid. They were bursting with wonder. They didn't wait for training. They didn't go to a Sunday school class. They didn't go to a life group. They didn't wait for more information. They simply passed on to others what God had happened to do to them. That's all they did. That was their master plan. Witnessing is simple as sharing what you know to be true. So here's my question. Do you know Christ to be true? Do you know him to be true about God and Jesus and his word? That's what Matthew 28 is all about. That's why Jesus said in Acts 1, you shall be my witnesses. Just tell people what you know to be true. If any of us were called to be a witness in court, you might have some anxiety. You might have some, some sense of trepidation because of the formality of it. But at the end of the day, what do you do? You get on the seat and you answer truthfully what's asked of you. Being a witness for God is simply telling people, look, all I know is, yes, if you know the 16-year-old version of Steve, 
He was an evil punk who looked out over himself, only for himself. And God, in no, uh, no way, shape, or form can I explain, randomly and yet appropriately saved me and uses me, and I have no explanation except God is great and I am nothing. That's true. And that's my testimony. That's my witness. That's my opening statement. There's power in Christmas. Why? Because when Jesus came, God's plan to redeem for himself a people became visible. Jesus is God with us. He's the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of David, Jesus Christ, the Lord. And the gospel of Jesus is for anyone and everyone. doesn't matter who you are, male or female, young and old. It doesn't matter what your story is. I love this because I, I get this all, and I know this happens in this church. Well, you're Calvinists. Half of you don't even know what the word means. And don't go find out. Here's what you need to know. I have never met the sinner who went to God who God didn't want. You need to hear that. I have never met the sinner who went to God who God didn't want. That's the power of the cross. And I truly believe that God always reveals himself first. I do. But that is the fundamental difference between faith and Christianity and religion. See, religion is man's search for God. Christianity is God coming for man. God sacrifices, and you see that in Matthew and Luke. Snap, you see it everywhere in the Bible. And as we come to the end, John Piper writes this. I love this. He says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, right? Where is he was born king of the Jews? Piper says this, unlike Luke, Matthew does not tell us about the shepherds coming to visit Jesus in the stable. His focus is immediately on foreigners coming from the east to worship Jesus. So Matthew portrays Jesus at the beginning and end of his gospel as a universal Messiah for the nations, not just the Jews. Because remember in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 3, nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Guys, your Bible will all make sense if you read it. And so Matthew adds proof of the Messiahship. But not only is Piper correct, <coughs> uh, the Bible is correct, which trumps Piper. All right? Yes, I said that here. The Bible trumps Piper. All right? Because when you come, uh, one of the other things, when I was at First Baptist, when I watched their Christmas program, my buddy Kirk got up and he said this in a very stiff way. Um, he said, I've read the back of the book and we win. Amen? That's true. He might have been stiff when he said it, but he was right. All right? And let me prove it to you. In Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 to 14, listen to the words of John. He says, Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for, for God. Now notice this. From every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then down further it says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then everybody sings to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And if that doesn't light your fire, your wood's wet. Now that's about as southern gospel as I can get you. And I, I, I brought everybody that I had, all right? So as we clue it up, Let's take our four points and you own it. If you're here this morning, very quickly, has, is, Jesus revealing himself to you right here and right now? Do you sense God's Spirit speaking to you going, listen, you need to believe in me. I'm here. I'm here. I'm talking to you. Christian, is God speaking to you, but you've gotten the habit of ignoring him? James says in James 1, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own self. Don't just look in the mirror. You know how I got saved? By reading those verses in James. And I had like a Vietnam flashback of all the church services I sat in, all the youth groups I attended, all the teen retreats I went to, all the pageants I participated in, all the Christian school courses I took, and every time I read verses or I heard sermons or I heard devotionals or whatever, and my heart was convicted and I knew God was speaking and I just held on a little tighter and said, if I just get through this, that weird feeling will go away and I can start to live my life again. 
And God in his mercy and grace said, no, 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 not today. You don't get to ignore me today. You will respond. Will you respond to Jesus today? Remember what Jesus said to Zacchaeus? This day salvation has come to visit your house. Number two, what is your response to Jesus? What is your response to Jesus? These two types of different people, one group wealthy, empowered, and respected, even feared. The other group, the shepherds, were hardworking. They were lower class, often looked down upon. But remember, we started with John Newton. May I end with John Newton? Let me give you some more words of John Newton in his diary. He said, Jesus is no longer visible on the earth, but he has promised his spiritual presence to abide with his word, his ordinances, and his people to the end of time. Weary and heavy laden souls have now no need to take a long journey to seek him, but he is always near them in a spiritual matter where his gospel is preached. Therefore, come unto him. That is, raise your hearts and breathe forth your complaints to him. He is just such a savior as your circumstances require and as you yourself could wish for. That's worth responding to. Now, will you worship Jesus this Christmas? Worship is more than just church, by the way. You don't just worship here, and it's more than just the music. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. And I have covered all my circles because I just quoted that in King James. All right? So I've covered all my bases. We need to stop compartmentalizing our Christianity. If you've met Jesus, it changes everything. And then lastly, will you obey and proclaim Jesus this Christmas? Will you share what God has done to you and in you and for you this Christmas with your friends and your family, your co-workers, and your fellow students? There is power in, Christ in Christmas. Oh, come all ye faithful. This Christmas, Calvary, will we see how God has revealed himself and will we respond to it and will we worship him and will we obey him and we will pro proclaim that this Christmas. Let's close in prayer. Father God, I thank you for this day. Father, I thank you for the fact that you are all-powerful and we are weak. And so, Lord, now as we close by singing another Christmas carol anthem that everybody knows so well, may we lift up our voices and take note of the words we are singing and say fundamentally within our being and our soul, Father God, work in me, change me, the way I act, the way I think, the way I treat others, the way I look at my relationships, the way I handle failure and disappointment, the way I look at my identity, my job, my self-worth, my bank account, whatever it is, Lord, may we Put it all through the lens of Jesus Christ. If there's one here this morning and they don't know you, Father God, give them courage to seek you and find you. And for Christians, as we're sometimes guilty of playing games in church, at home, at the foot of the cross, give us courageous faith to know with Jesus, we don't have to pretend or run and hide. We can find rest for our soul. I pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said.